can see on the screen here, called One Another. This is our third Sunday in this series. And the premise of One Another, this is, this is kind of a phrase you hear or read a lot in the New Testament, where you'll hear something to the effect of, do this for one another. And, and there's typically uh, a, a theological reason, a doctrinal reason for why we should do these things. So a good example of this, it's one that we haven't actually looked at, um, but it's a good example that where the Bible says, forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. Right? So there's, there's a good example of what we're talking about. Right? Do something for one another as Christ did for you or something to that effect. That's a very common paradigm that we see in the letters of Paul in particular, but really in all of the New Testament letters, you have this idea of being in relationship with one another and what that looks like and how that plays out and what we should be doing in light of that. And so the last couple of weeks, we've looked at um, being members of one another and what that means what it means to have our spiritual gifts brought to the church as God has drawn everybody here for a purpose and a reason to utilize our gifts for the glory of God and for the upbuilding of the church. That was kind of week one. Week two, last week we looked at, I am completely blanking now on what we looked at. Isn't that terrible? I told you you would forget. I didn't think I would forget. Um, But yeah, we looked at uh, teaching one another. There it is, teaching one another um, and what that looks like and what that means. And so today, uh, we're going to look at another one of these, and it's in Galatians 6, verse 2 in particular. We're gonna re- I'll read us verse 2 so that we get kind of the, the command in front of us, and then we'll stop and talk about what we're looking at. Here's what it says. He says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So what we get to talk about this morning is this. What does it mean to bear one another's burdens? What does that mean, and how do we do it? That's really just going to be the focus of our time today. Um, now, as, as we read that, that little sentence out of context, uh, you just pull that verse out, And you hear Paul say, bear one another's burdens. What comes to your mind as what comes to my mind is probably let's meet people's physical, tangible needs. That's probably what came to your mind as you heard this. It's certainly what would come to my mind as well. Like we have these burdens that we need to help people carry and that could be the burden of a financial struggle or maybe a relational struggle or something tangible in their life that we need to come alongside them and help them accomplish. But here's what's interesting is as you actually read this in its context, that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's not talking about meeting people's physical needs. Now when I say that, it doesn't mean that Paul never talks about that. He does. Uh, and as does the whole New Testament. The, the Bible is really clear that the church should be gathering around people in need. In fact, James tells us uh, that if we know of our brothers or sisters who are in need and say, hey, you know, be warm and be filled, but we don't do anything to help them, we can't really say we're following Jesus in that moment. 
right? So there is a place for meeting physical, tangible needs in the body of Christ. I'm not saying that that has no place. It does. But that's not the context here. And I think there's a distinction here that Paul's making that is actually really incredible, but also really uncomfortable. And I, I want to just talk you through what this is. So look, look back at verse 1. I think this is way more uncomfortable for us than just helping someone pay a bill or buying some groceries, as important as that can be. What Paul's calling us to here is actually much more challenging and hard for us to swallow. But let's look at it. Verse 1. Brothers, brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, so transgression is a fancy word for sin or rebellion, disobedience to God. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So this is totally different than what our minds would naturally go to. Because what Paul's talking about here is not the burden of a physical need, but the need to be restored to Jesus after having fallen into a sin. That's what he's talking about. That we as the church get to have this ministry with each other where if we know someone in our church, someone that we love, someone that is a fellow believer in Christ has now been caught in a, in a transgression or struggling with a sin, it says we who are spiritual, those of you who are spiritual should restore that person in a spirit of gentleness. And, and we're going to talk about how all that works and what that looks like. But this is what Paul means when he says to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, this is super hard. You know why? It, it's hard because we live in, and I, and I hate this phrase, but it's, it's very appropriate for now. Um, we live in a you-do-you world. Now, have you heard somebody say that, you-do-you? I hate that. It's annoying. Millennials use it and, and you know, whatever. But you-do-you is an idea that we're, I'm, I'm an individual. You can't tell me how to live my life. I'm just going to do me. You do you. Okay, good. Let's move on. Now, in one sense, in the most, uh, I guess, innocent sense, you do you is okay in the context of, hey, you like this music. I like that music. Ah, you do you. I don't, I don't care if you prefer that over this. Fine. Like, you can be an individual. You can have your, your likes, your dislikes. You can like this model of truck and that model of truck. You can like, you know, you can do this or that. Fine, but that's not usually what's meant by you do you. What we typically hear that, that being used as is a way of justifying the fact that you have no right to speak into my life. And so because we live in that world and we live very individualistically in our society, we feel like we can't do what Paul's calling us to do. To help restore someone to Christ is literally meddling in their affairs, isn't it? I mean, that by definition, we have to get into their business and that's not comfortable and that's totally contrary to everything we hold dear as a society. 
But I'll just be honest. I don't know where I would be today. And maybe I'd be right where I am. I don't know. But if, if I didn't have people in my life through all these years telling me uh, when I've screwed up and when I've made a mistake and calling me back to Jesus, if I didn't have friends and family meddling in my life, I don't know where I'd be. And maybe you can look at that in your own life and go, you know, that's true for me too. I, I need people to speak into my life and help me. I think we, when we are in the right place to receive that, it can be very life-giving. But if we all just kind of abdicate this responsibility and go, well, I just can't speak into my friend's life because that would infringe on their individuality or whatever, I think we're doing a great disservice to them. We're not helping them. And so we, we need to recognize that this is what the Bible calls us to, to bear their burdens, the burdens of their sin. That's, that's the kind of burden Paul's talking about here, the burden of sin and transgression and rebellion. We need to come alongside people struggling in these things and we need to help them bear that burden, ultimately bringing it to the cross of Christ for forgiveness. That's what we're looking at, and that's what we're talking about. Now, I want to I get to, just for a few minutes here, just kind of walk through the text so that we can look at how Paul expects us to do this. Right? There's a process here that he lays out. There's a process that we need to pay attention to because if we don't pay attention to the process, then we're going to do this in a very, very uh, harmful way. In fact, maybe some of the reasons why we back away from this is because we've been in churches that we've seen this done very poorly. And, and you know, when we've seen it done very poorly, it makes us kind of go back and go, no, 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 I don't want this. In fact, I, I've seen it done very poorly, very poorly. Um, and normally when it's poorly done, it, it involves somebody being thrown out like they're, yesterday's newspaper or something. And that's unfortunate. And that's not at all the heart of Jesus for this situation. We need to be careful how we do this and, and follow the appropriate steps. So we're going we're gonna to work through this a little bit at a time, looking at verse one and two. And, and then I'm going to just draw us at the end of this thing, just draw us back to Jesus because he is ultimately our burden bearer. So we're going to look at him mostly, but let's quickly walk through this text. Um, so it says brothers, that, that word, uh, if you have a Bible in front of you, you may notice there's a footnote next to it uh, because the word there isn't just for men. It's a, it's a general term for mankind. Brothers, sisters is implied in this. So it says brothers, sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression... So anyone implies anyone, okay, right? No one's exempt from this. No one's exempt from having somebody care for them in this way. Any transgression implies anything that we do that's outside of God's will. If that's the situation you find yourself, you find a brother or sister in Christ who has stepped into transgression, the, ne- the first thing he says is, you who are spiritual should restore him. So let's talk about what this word spiritual means because I think that's the scary word in this. 
And actually, if I'm being honest, this is the word that we can say, okay, I don't qualify, so I'm, I'm good. I, I can take a pass on this. I, I don't think that that's the case. But let's, let's look at what it means to be spiritual. Paul doesn't let us leave us wondering. He's, he's actually spent basically all of chapter 5 explaining to us what it means to be spiritual. He's, he's talking through um, this idea of being saved by Jesus, right? That having this, this life-giving grace from God applied to our lives where we trade in our old self and put on this new set of clothes that Jesus gives us called the righteousness of Christ. And he tells us in chapter 5 that if we are being led by the Spirit, we are not under the law. And he goes in and talks about the contrast between living in our human nature and living in the Spirit. He walks us through all the things that are human or fleshly, and, and then he walks through the things that are spiritual. And he does that in verse 22 and 23 by laying out the fruit of the Spirit. So he's giving us examples of what a life that's being uh, spiritual looks like. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And then here's, here's I think, what will really help us answer the question in verse 24 and 20 through 25. It says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passion and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So fundamentally, what does it mean to be a spiritual person? It means that we have been crucified with Christ, so our sins have been paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. And we are actively, in an ongoing way, living, walking in his power through the Holy Spirit. This all comes back to what we looked at a couple weeks ago in John 15, where Jesus says, if you abide in me, you will bear fruit. Right? So being spiritual means that we are in this moment abiding in Jesus, walking with his spirit, living in a way that honors him. Okay, now this is the deal. This is not a permanent status for anyone while we live in this sinful world. There is no one you will meet who will always be living in a spirit-filled way. We sin, we rebel, we struggle, we, we do. It's the fact. But, but here's the thing. Paul's not saying here that being spiritual means you never have struggles in your life. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you don't have junk to deal with. What it means is that in this moment, as you've dealt with or encountered this person in a struggle, in this moment, you're walking by the power of the Spirit of God and you are abiding in Jesus so that you are equipped to help. So again, there are going to be seasons where you're in a place to help someone else and there are going to be a season, seasons in your life where you're in a place to be helped. There, there is no one spiritual in the sense that there's, there's certain people up uh, above us on a plateau so, or you know, up above on this platform, I should say, and, and somehow they never have to be dealt with or talked to. Or 
or helped, right? If anyone is caught in any transgression, so that means that there is a capability and a potential for any of us to not be walking in the spirit in that moment where we need someone who is to come and speak into our lives. So you who are spiritual doesn't mean you don't have junk in your life. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It means you're walking with Jesus in that moment. And if you're a Christian, there's going to be moments where you are and there's going to be moments where you're struggling in that. And, and so really what this boils down to is we need to evaluate our own hearts are, and ask ourselves the question, are we in a place right now where we can speak into this person's life? If not, then we need to find someone who is to help this person. But, but honestly, here's what I've noticed. When I've seen someone in my life in, in a sin, it tends to work like a mirror in my own life and go, oh yeah, shoot, I struggle with that too. And then what that does is it convicts me so that I can deal with that sin and by bringing it to the, to the cross of Christ and repenting of it. And then I'm in a place, perhaps, to help this person, right? But it would be hypocritical for me to be struggling with the exact same thing or with something very similar to it and have the audacity to say, well, let me tell you how to live while my life is, is chaos, Right? So we, we have to balance this. We have to realize that we may not be always in the place to help, but we will be sometimes. And, and it is God's mercy to us to show us when we need to repent and be restored. And when we repent and are restored to Christ ourselves, we can help this person. Right? Because spirituality or being spiritual is not an, a permanent status it's a position in a moment in time. And, and Jesus addresses this, right? He addresses the issue of helping people while evaluating your own heart to see if you're in a place to do it. He uses this analogy or this parable of the, of the log and the speck. You've probably heard this at some point in your life. Jesus tells a story about a, a man who has a log jammed into his eye socket. And this man looks at his brother and says, you know, you've got a little tiny piece of sawdust on, on your eye. Maybe I should help you get that out. Jesus is pointing out the ridiculousness of that, right? Like, how can you, with a giant log in your eye, help someone with a speck in theirs? The, the implication is, no, deal with your log so that you can help that person. Jesus actually says that, right? Get rid of the log from your own eye, which is Repent of your sin, repent of the glaring problem in your life so that you're then able to help your brother with the speck in their eye. That's what we're talking about. So you who are spiritual doesn't, should not intimidate us. It should help us recognize that um, there are going to be seasons where we can step into someone else's situation and are equipped to do that. And then there may be times where this is confronted with us and we realize I'm not in a good place, but we don't use that as an excuse to stay in a bad place. We use it as God's mercy and grace to us to get us to repent so that maybe we can take that log out of our eye and then help our brother or sister with their struggles. That's what we're dealing with. Now, let's keep reading, though. It says, you who are spiritual should restore him. So the goal of this is restoration. 
the goal of this process is to get this person back to Jesus. And I think this is one of the ways in which the church has failed so many times. The church, you know, globally, the large church. Um, Because I think a lot of us treat people who are struggling with sin as problems to be fixed rather than people to love. And because they're problems to be fixed, if they're not fixed, well, then what do you do with a problem that you can't fix? You just move on from it. And that's unfortunately what we've seen happen so many times in our churches, where somebody actually continually struggles because they're a human on a journey to Jesus. And instead of looking at our own hearts with compassion for them, we say, you know what? We don't want to deal with this. Please go away. And that's, that's sad. And it's, it's unfortunate. Now, of course, I've, I've been in this thing a long time, long enough as a pastor to know that there are times where the church t- treats people that way. And there are also times where the individual being, um, you know, encouraged to repent doesn't want to repent and they'll just leave on their own. And that's heartbreaking in itself. But that's different, right? If they choose to leave, you don't want to see it happen, but we can live with it. If we're the reason that they're being driven out, that's a much bigger problem. And that's one we need to search, search for our, our uh, purpose of being here. So you who are spiritual should restore him. So people in a place with Jesus have the responsibility to help bring people back to Jesus or at least help them get there. Now look at the next phrase. This is huge. In a spirit of gentleness. We do not do this well. We don't. We, we tend to, I, I think, and I, I'll say this, I think it's because, honestly, we are so emotionally invested in the situation. Like, we love these people, whether they're our family or friends or just our fellow church members. We love these people, and when they're doing something that's going to train wreck their life, and, and have all this catastrophic chaos going around it, we get pretty emotionally attached to that and we want them to fix this and we want them to do it now, which means that we are sometimes more aggressive in our approach to them than we need to be. And we've seen this happen all the time. Right? I've seen it happen all the time where we, we love this person. I think out of the goodness of our heart, we want them to repent. But what we do is we actually ignore the scriptures and, and just kind of toss this whole spirit of gentleness thing out the window and go, you know, I, yeah, that's nice. But actually what this person needs is a kick in the teeth. Right? And that's, that's how we treat a lot of people with these problems. But, but here's the thing when we fail to do what God calls us to do in the way that God calls us to do it, we're not going to see fruit. We're not going to see God work in it. We have to follow the script because God knows what he's talking about. And so when God tells us that we need to approach these people in the spirit of gentleness, he's not joking. He's telling us that this is the, the way to approach it. And so rather than going at somebody with harshness and judgment and condemnation, we need to bring the gospel and the good news of Jesus to this person's life in in which the Bible tells us 
There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There is no judgment seat for those in Christ. There is mercy seat for those in Christ. There's a judgment seat for those outside of Christ. There's a throne of grace for those in Christ. We have to recognize that these are, this is the fact. We can't come at people with this terrible demeanor. Now, at the same time, we have to realize that being gentle doesn't mean we beat around the bush. It doesn't mean we aren't direct or clear. We need to be direct and clear and and firm at times. But it does mean that we approach the person with kindness, compassion, empathy. You know why? Because that's how Jesus approaches us. With kindness, compassion, and empathy. You know, the only people that Jesus was harsh with were the people who refused to admit that they were sinners. The the Pharisees were treated pretty harshly by Jesus, but that's because they were put in a position of authority and they squandered that authority with with their selfishness and their refusal to admit they needed help. Jesus says, I, I, I came as a physician, and a physician goes to the sick, right? You don't need a doctor if you're not sick, he says. And so th- this, is, this is the mentality. I mean, there's some people who don't think they need a doctor, even though everyone does, in the sense of the great physician. We need him to bring his grace to our lives. But if we're in a place where we refuse to admit that, then yeah, we need to be be maybe a little bit more confrontational, perhaps. Jesus was. But if we're just looking at Jesus's ministry towards sinners and tax collectors and and the vile members in, in the religious people's minds, the vile members of society, did Jesus treat any of them with condemnation? Think about Zacchaeus. Think about the woman at the well. Think about the woman caught in the act of adultery. Think about the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her hair, who was likely a prostitute. Think about all these women that the religious people would look at and go, they they have no place here. Jesus moved into those people's lives. He approached them, but he didn't do it in a way that was condemning, but of extending grace. This is why we need to extend grace and gentleness to others. The Bible actually tells us in Romans chapter 3, maybe it's Romans 4, Romans 4, Paul actually writes that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It is his kindness that leads us to repentance. And I think that's that's where we've got to recognize our role in this. If we're going to be like Jesus, we've got to approach these people who are, yes, doing things that are wrong, and sinful, and we don't want to diminish that, but how does Jesus treat us with our sin? He, He extends mercy to us, and he helps us be found. He doesn't reject us. So we, we have this, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Next, he says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. So he's just simply telling us this, be aware of yourself. Be aware of of what this person is doing. You are capable of doing as well. You're not 
You're not Superman or whatever. You are a sinner like this person that you're trying to help is. And so he says, keep watch on yourself because you could be tempted too. And, and here's the truth. There may be people to help other people that are more equipped than you, right? If you are an alcoholic, maybe you can minister to other alcoholics, but if that puts you in a position of danger of succumbing to that temptation, again, perhaps it's best to leave it to someone who isn't tempted as strongly in that area, right? If, if we, have, we have to step into difficult situations and hard, hard things, and maybe we're the right person to do it, and maybe we're not. We have to evaluate that. We need to keep watch on ourselves because we have the potential to be tempted as well. So now, then he gets into this. He, he, the verse two, the main verse we read, he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So what, here's what I want to spend the rest of our time doing today. I want us to look at what it means to fulfill the law of Christ by bearing burdens, the burdens of sin. So here, here's the thing. Uh, when you read the context of Galatians, this phrase, the law of Christ, is kind of like unusual. Paul's basically spending this whole letter telling us why we're not under the law. And, and he doesn't really associate the law with Christ. These are distinct things in in Paul's mind. You have the law, which points to our need for Christ, but then you have Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law for us. And so that he mashes these two concepts together is a little bit interesting. And I think we need to unpack why that is. He says, by bearing each other's burdens, the burdens of our sin, the burdens of of our transgressions, we fulfill the law of Christ Here's why that is. It's because that is exactly what Jesus came to do. He came to be our burden bearer. He came to bear all of our sins upon himself. We looked at this a few, couple months ago perhaps, um, Isaiah 53. Um, he, he says this, Isaiah specifically says that this is what Jesus would be for us. It says, verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs. So borne is the past tense for bearing something. He's borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was crushed under the weight of our burdens the burdens of our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You hear that? Just this idea of bearing burdens is all over this little paragraph. And yes, uses different words, right? Uh, Being something laying on Jesus, being crushed, being, uh, uh, bearing our griefs, right? We have this whole, this whole thing. This is what Jesus came into the world to do, to be our burden bearer, to be the one who would search 
out the lost, find them, bear their burdens on the cross and, and restore us to God. And so when Paul tells us that we get to bear one another's burdens, this is not a project that we have to undertake. This, this is not a something that we have to be begrudgingly doing. This is the ministry of the church. This is the beautiful, sacred privilege of the church to get to come alongside struggling sinners and help them be restored back to Jesus, who is their ultimate burden bearer. We're not the ultimate burden bearers. We are merely helping shoulder the burden of their sin so that we can get them to the burden bearer that their soul needs. And Jesus tells us this um, in a really amazing way through the story of the prodigal son. And I shared this parable so many times. I love it. I, and I see something new every time I study it. And, and what's interesting is if you look at, uh, if you want to turn to Luke 15, um, Luke 15, 1 starts this way. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners... We're all drawing near to hear him. That's Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, those are the religious leaders, they grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The, the Pharisees grumbled because Jesus was embracing and loving and living life among tax collectors, and sinners. That's the heart of Jesus. And thank goodness it is because every one of us falls into that sinner category. The, the Pharisees and the scribes, they didn't see themselves in that category. And so they complained about Jesus. And here's what verse 3 says. It says, So, because they're grumbling, he told them this parable. Now, as you continue to read, you actually read three parables, but they're all one united thing. He tells them uh, two very short parables and before he gets into the prodigal son or what we call the prodigal son. He tells them the parable of the lost sheep and then the parable of the lost coin and then the parable of the lost son. And here's the thing. The, the first two short parables are identical with the exception of what was lost. But here's the, here's the formula. Someone had something, they lost it, they went to find it, and when they found it, they came back and they celebrated. That's the formula. So the sheep gets lost, the shepherd leaves the 99, finds the sheep, comes back, has a party. The woman in the, in the coin, she loses one of her 10 coins. She turns her whole house upside down. She finds the coin, searching for it, she finds it, and then she calls her friends and neighbors and they celebrate. Then you get to the parable of the prodigal son. And here's the thing. Jesus has already set us up to know what, the pro, what this should be. All right? Son gets lost. Son is searched for and found. And then they celebrate. But what is, if you know the parable, what is blatantly absent in this third parable? You don't have to answer. I'll answer for you. No one goes to find him. Do you ever notice that? 
See, Jesus starts the parable with, there was a man who had two sons and the younger son runs, runs off. He runs off with the inheritance. He squanders it in reckless living. Jesus has already set us up to think that older son is going to go and find his brother. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He lets that brother waste his inheritance, squander his reputation, and is good, is good with him if he just dies. This brother is completely negligent of his responsibility. It, would have been, it wouldn't have been the father's responsibility in this culture. The father was old. He wasn't able to go on a long journey for his son, but the older brother should have, for the sake of his father, pursued his brother and brought him home and they should celebrate at that point. But that's not what happens. The, the, the younger boy wanders off. No one goes to find him. And it's only by God's grace that he wakes up to his senses and comes home. And then when he comes home, there's a party and the older brother's ticked off that there's a party. That's how the story ends. But here's the thing. It makes you wonder what would have happened? How much sooner would, it, would the son have been restored to the family had the brother gone and find him? We'll never know because it's hypothetical. But here's the point that Jesus is making. This is what the parable tells us. It's telling us that we need an older brother to come and find us. And Jesus is saying, that's going to be me. He's speaking to the Pharisees. He's rebuking the Pharisees. Why? Because the Pharisees were the ones who were entrusted with God's word. They should have been pursuing the lost, but they weren't. So Jesus, as our magnificent older brother, comes to find us. And when he finds us, he brings us home. And there's rejoicing and celebration and grace. Listen, that's, this is what the church is meant to be doing we shouldn't be sitting here like a bunch of Pharisees going, oh, I wish these bad people would show up once in a while. We should be pursuing them. And when our brothers and sisters in Christ slip and stumble and, and are under the weight of their horrible sin, who should be coming alongside them to help them be restored? We should. Why? Because that's what Jesus did for us and that's what we are called to do with Jesus. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. He tells us that we are ministers of reconciliation. Our job is to help reconcile people to God through Christ. Jesus is the one who searches for us and he gives us and entrusts to us that same calling to seek and save that which is lost. We can't do the saving, right? We have to bring these people to the one who can do the saving. But that's our great and beautiful mission. And I was reminded of this, um, Paul Tripp, who uh, some of you know, because he, he led our uh, marriage class last month, if you were there. Um, but he's written a lot of books. And one of the books he wrote is uh, really helpful. It's called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. And I love the subtitle because it gets to the, the whole point of the book. The subtitle is, People in Need of Change, Helping People in Need of Change. 
And that's exactly what we're supposed to be, right? We're people in need of change, but we're also called to help people in need of change. And here's how he, here's what he writes. I'll just read a short paragraph for you and then we'll conclude. Paul Tripp writes, the central work of God's kingdom is change. God accomplishes this work as the Holy Spirit empowers people to bring his word to others. We bring more than solutions, strategies, principles, and commands. We bring the greatest story ever told. We bring the story of the Redeemer. Our goal is to help one another live with a God's story mentality. Our mission is to teach, admonish, and encourage one another to rest in his sovereignty rather than establishing our own to rely on his grace rather than performing on our own and to submit to his glory rather than seeking our own. And here's the key. He says, this is the work of the kingdom of God. People in the hands of the redeemer daily functioning as his tools of lasting change. This is what we're called to. Don't step away from it as uncomfortable as it is, step into it because you don't know how many days, months, years could be wasted in a person's life as they struggle with sin because nobody's willing to step in and say, brother, sister, I love you. Jesus loves you. Come back to him. We, we can see so much happen because we're bold enough, brave enough courageous enough to do the ministry of Jesus Christ for one another. It's our great calling. And let's see him use us in it. In a spirit of gentleness, as we're walking with Jesus, doing the things he's called us to do, right? We got to follow the formula. But if we do this in a way that is honoring to Christ, we can see people's change, people change, hearts brought back to Christ. And hopefully by God's grace, not years and years of squandered living. That should be our hope and goal for every single one of us, including ourselves. So let me, let me close with that. Let me pray for us and then we'll take some time to sing and worship and respond through our remembrance of Christ's death for us at, at the table of communion. Let's, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are our burden bearer. You have done for us what we could never do for ourselves and yet you've empowered us to do with others and for others what they need to bring them to you. And we pray, Father, that our church would be committed to this kind of activity, that we would be committed to helping bear one another's burdens and so fulfill your, your law. We pray, Jesus, that you would empower us to do that. We pray, Jesus, that you would work even now in our hearts. Confront us with our sin, Lord. Help us to repent. May we rejoice in your grace as we go and celebrate your supper. Father, may our hearts be drawn to Jesus today. It's only your sovereign hand that can lead us there. We pray for that and we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.